Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It's a real pleasure today to welcome Professor Steve B. Lee to the program to discuss Django Generations, Hearing Ethno-Race, Citizenship, and Jazz Manouche in France, published in 2021 with the University of Chicago Press. Professor Lee is Assistant Professor of Music at the University of Maryland, and I should also mention that the book won the William A. Douglas Prize in Europeanist Anthropology from the Society for Anthropology of Europe. Professor Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to be here. What inspired you to put this book together? So this book uh, grew out of my dissertation, uh, but the project itself actually goes back to when I was a teenager. So I am a violinist and a violist, and I'm primarily classically trained. Uh, But in high school, I started getting into jazz. And one of the first models I was guided to for uh, string-based jazz uh, was the music of Django Reinhardt, who, of course, I'm going to talk about uh, in a little bit. But um, I looked to his music as well as that of his longtime collaborator, the violinist Stefan Grappelli. So uh, after high school, when I was in college uh, at Boston University, I did one of those uh, make-up-your-own-major programs in anthropology and uh, gastronomy, actually. So I had a focus on food studies. And I started doing a lot of ethnographic research at that point and ended up writing a thesis uh, based on a couple of years of ethnographic field work on the slow food movement and organization. But during this whole time, I kept up my interest in uh, playing jazz, um, learning about jazz. And then also I started exploring more of the history and the cultural foundations of the music that Reinhardt and Grappelli played. And so that led me to uh, become very interested in learning about Romanis, uh, which is uh, the ethno-racial group to which Reinhardt belonged. So uh, while I'm introducing this, just to be clear, uh, I use the term Romanese to refer to members of an ethno-racial group that traces its origins to Northwest India, and that is currently most populous throughout Europe. Now, they're often known somewhat pejoratively as gypsies and are subject to a lot of stereotyping, whether it's in terms of criminality and poverty or the the more romanticizing stereotypes that they are inherently free-spirited and nomadic, uh, which uh, most are not. Um, But so that's kind of how Romani people often get perceived in in popular media. So Reinhardt belonged to the Manouche subgroup of Romani people. And Manouche are the people for which the musical genre jazz Manouche is named. And of course, I'll talk a bit more about that genre in a sec. Um, But I started learning about Romanis on my own uh, through reading and uh, looking at media and all that that kind of thing. Um, And then I, I studied abroad in France and was exposed to the jazz Manouche scene there. And then after college, I took a couple of years off to work before deciding to apply to grad school. And then during that time, before I started grad school, I decided to do an independent ethnographic project on improvisational pedagogy at the New England Conservatory in Boston. And uh, I was uh, really interested in questions about how creativity is both taught and practiced within institutions like conservatories that tend to have a a more kind of traditional, uh, more rigid curriculum. Um, And I wanted to learn about how students and faculty conceptualize their own more individualized creative practices within the confines of this institution. So I was really interested in basically in like, how do you teach creativity? Um, And then when I started my PhD at NYU in 2010, um, I initially envisioned a dissertation project that was going to be about string improvisation and pedagogy more broadly. Uh, but then after I, I moved to New York, I became familiar with the jazz Manouche scene in, in New York. Um, and then I also traveled a, a bit to France and, and researched what it was like there. Um, I became so intrigued by the political dimensions of this music and then with Romani representation in general um, that I decided to focus on jazz Manouche as my dissertation topic. And I was especially curious about how Django Reinhardt appeared to be, on the one hand, this um, kind of national hero for French music, but then on the other hand, he was also considered to be this uh, 
hero for Manouche people who were otherwise quite marginalized within French society. So I wanted to understand how people thought about this music as being both very familiar within French society, but then also having this kind of exotic edge to it. And I also wanted to see how Manouche people might also be using this music in a kind of activist sense to to promote awareness of of who they were. Uh, So those were some of the motivations to to bring me to uh, what I ended up researching. I was also encouraged by a very close friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Petra Gelbart, uh, who is a Romani ethnomusicologist and activist. Uh, And so with her, I worked on a number of various musical and awareness uh, raising projects while I was doing my coursework in New York. Um, And then during that time, I also really started building my network of Romani activists and scholars and musicians. Uh, And eventually, all of this led me to embark upon a full year of dedicated fieldwork in 2013 to 2014. Um, And then I did a number of uh, smaller fieldwork stints thereafter. And I continue to to go back to France whenever I can. Um, But I had been Initially, I'd been planning to do most of my field work in and around Paris, because that's really where uh, the kind of commercial locus of this music is. But when I got there in 2013, uh, whenever I'd start telling people about my project and what I was interested in researching, they would just tell me that I had to go to Alsace. Um, And uh, for anyone who's not familiar, Alsace is a region in eastern France, it borders Germany. Um, And so I I was told that that is where the quote unquote real jazz manouche was happening. And uh, eventually enough people told me that, that I said, okay, I'll just, I'll move to Strasbourg. (laughs) So, so I did. Um, And um, yeah. And then that's, that's basically the the basis of of this project. And um, as I explain in detail in the book, it's really um, both an ethnographic project as well as an archival project uh, that spans basically the years from the 1930s up until um, right before I published the book. I love the title of this book. Could you explain the title of this book for listeners? Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was uh, t- took a long time to develop. But um, so, so the full title is Django Generations, Hearing, Ethnorace, Citizenship, and Jazz Manouche in France. And um, I'll just break down a few bits of this title, starting with Django, the most obvious part of the title. Uh, so among uh, his fans, Django Reinhardt is typically known just as Django. He, he, he's on a first name basis with most of his listeners. Um, and he, as I mentioned before, he was a Manouche Romani guitarist um, who he eventually became known as uh, Europe's most famous jazz musician. And I think that's a title that he probably still holds today. Like his, his fame was um, really, really huge. Uh, So he was born in 1910, and he grew up primarily in France uh, within a family of professional musicians. And then starting in the 1930s, he became especially well known for his really innovative approach to improvisation in jazz. And in in developing this style, uh, he really also developed a new level of prestige for the guitar as a solo instrument in jazz, uh, which it had not really risen to that level before, um, at least on you know such a large scale. And uh, I should also probably note that jazz, by, by this point in time, by the 1930s, jazz had already become a, a pretty huge industry in, in France. Um, uh, jazz had been globalizing um, out of the United States since uh, basically the 1910s through the 20s. Uh, and there was already like a, a fairly well-established jazz industry at this point. So he was kind of um, building on the, the popularity that jazz already had at this time. So Django performed throughout the 1930s, throughout the 1940s, even under Nazi occupation, um, which, you know, he still he still managed to thrive in these underground jazz clubs and even earn the attention of um, some, some Nazi officers who... Uh, really enjoyed and appreciated his music. Uh, And then um, after the war, he continued to play uh, quite a bit. He even uh, went on tour to the U.S. at the invitation of Duke Ellington uh, and um, kept playing with a a number of uh, really well-renowned jazz musicians through the early 1950s. Uh, During his lifetime, he made over 900 recordings that we know of. Uh, And then in 1953, uh, he died suddenly uh, from a brain hemorrhage. And so uh, 
you know, his obviously his his journey was cut off then, um, but his legacy has continued to grow ever since his his untimely death. So he remains, uh, as I said, a really important figure in jazz, and um, he's actually one of the very few non-American jazz musicians to have earned this this level of recognition. Um, I should also mention that one of the things that Django is most well known for is his disability. So uh, this is a story that um, when, when people start learning about Django, it's like one of the, the most kind of gripping aspects of his life. Uh, but in 1928, when he was 18 years old, he survived a fire in his caravan uh, that put him in the hospital for about a year. Um, so among other injuries to his body, his, his left arm and his left hand uh, became so severely burned that he developed some really deep scarring on the back of his left hand that ended up causing his ring and pinky fingers to kind of retract and become um, basically un, not unusable, but they, they lost most of their, their function. Um, and so for a guitarist, you can imagine this is an incredibly devastating industry, uh, uh, not industry, injury. Uh, but um, during his time in the hospital, he basically retrained himself to be able to play using mainly his index and middle finger as well as his thumb, which is not standard in in most uh, guitar practice. Um, So he's considered to be a real role model for uh, the fact that he persevered so much um, and and became such an illustrious musician despite only being able to work with just three fingers most of the time. So that's that's one aspect of his legacy as well. Another key part of this book's title is Jazz Minouche, um, which I referred to already briefly as a musical genre that's named after Minouche people. Um, And I detailed the development of this genre in the first couple chapters of the book. And I I talk about the political and economic implications of the genre throughout the book. Uh, But in a nutshell, Jazz Minouche is a style of jazz that's based mostly on Django's recorded work, which is fairly rare for a genre to emerge out of the work of basically just one person, but um, this this is what it became. Um, so it's very imitative of the style that he developed during his lifetime and along with other musicians as well. Um, and a jazz minouche ensemble is typically pretty small. So you usually have between three and six or seven musicians, um, usually between three and six. Uh, and it's very, very centered on the guitar. So in any given ensemble, you'll usually have at least two guitars, often more, uh, along with a double bass and often other instruments such as the violin, the accordion, clarinet. And um, jazz minouche ensembles typically don't include percussion instruments. um, And this this is mainly because the rhythm guitar fills this percussive role through a technique that's known as la pompe. Uh, which literally means the pump, uh, which is very illustrative of what it actually sounds like. Um, and it's it's a very brisk kind of right hand uh, strumming technique that gives the music a kind of very bouncy percussive feel. So that's one of the the main hallmarks of, uh, of the musical style. Um, I can only get us so far in describing the style with words. I think it's one of those things that you just kind of have to listen to to, to feel, fully understand what it's all about. Um, so if, if anybody is curious about this, I'd like to direct them to the book's website, uh, which is www.djangogen.com. And there I have a, a bunch of examples um, that can give you a sense of, of what, what this music sounds like. Um, but another thing else I'll say about the, the genre itself uh, is that uh, it's called jazz minouche not only because Django himself was minouche, um, and it's basically a genre that's in honor of him, uh, but also because the people who essentially created the genre were in large part Minouche people as well. Um, so one thing I also want to note is that uh, during Django's lifetime, he had no conception of jazz Minouche that just did not exist. And he considered himself to be a jazz musician above all. That That is what he was trying to do, um, regardless of, of his ethno-racial background. And so it wasn't until the late 1960s and mainly the early 1970s, so almost two decades after his death, uh, that a number of Manouche musicians started to play music in his style. And then from there, they developed an entire genre. So this was uh, really a familial community-based practice that grew partly out of an attraction to Django's music, 
but it also grew out of a perceived need to develop a practice, or you might even say a brand, that could serve Manouche uh, constituencies in both political and economic realms. So what I really tried to do in the first part of this book is to push against the rather popular narrative that Django himself invented Jazz Manouche and that it's been this unbroken tradition since his lifetime going all the way uh, from the mid 20th century to the present day. Um, and instead, I wanted to show how a whole genre was invented and relatively quickly became the main thing that Manouche people are known for. Um, and then I also wanted to show, at least in part, that um, there are a lot of non-Manouche people who also perform and consume this music, which complicates the idea that this is a uniquely Manouche music. So that kind of uh, throws a bit of a wrench into the narrative as well. Um, but just to get back to the title, uh, to say a little bit more of the title, um, I decided to call the book Django Generations. Uh, in part because I thought the alliterative aspect was catchy, and I'll, I'll admit that I, <laughs> I went through a lot of different words that begin with a J sound uh, to, to see what what I could put put along with Django. This this is a, a pretty typical naming convention in, um, in a lot of kind of jazz music or Django themed media. Um, but so you know, I, I wanted to, it to sound fun, but um, I was also thinking of generations itself in a few different ways. Um, so one sense is in terms of time periods, which reflects how I trace Django's legacy across these different historical moments and how he's come to signify a lot of different things depending on the demands of the, of the time period. Another sense of generations reflects how jazz manouche is a very intergenerational practice within some manouche communities. And it's something that's really passed down between generations and connects people of different generations. Um, and then finally, I think of generations in the literally generative sense, uh, in that Django and Jazz Manouche have been taken up to produce various ideologies about identity and difference, uh, to produce different kinds of histories, different subjectivities, and so on. So I'm really kind of making this term generations do a lot of work in that title. You developed this concept in the book of ratiosemiotics. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, ratiosemiotics is a relatively newly term, uh, coined term within anthropology, um, and it builds on a couple of uh, intersecting legacies that are within or adjacent to linguistic anthropology. Um, I, sh I guess I should mention also that... Um, I technically, my degree is in music. Uh, I consider myself both an ethnomusicologist and an anthropologist, and within that, a linguistic anthropologist. So a lot of my thinking is really informed by the field of linguistic anthropology. Um, so first you have this kind of semiotic anthropology that seeks to understand how communication works across a whole range of communicative or semiotic, uh, we could say, modalities. And... Um, it also, semiotic anthropology also seeks to understand how questions of power and political economy are part and parcel of the observable semiotic uh, process or processes. Uh, so you have that. And then more recently, there's been a branch of study that's developed called ratiolinguistics. Uh, and here I'm thinking mainly of the work of scholars like H. Sammy Aleem and Jonathan Rosa, Nelson Flores, and uh, a, a number of others who are committed to exploring how racial categories and language ideologies become mutually constitutive. So now with ratiosemiotics, I'm drawing on the work of uh, the linguistic anthropologist Crystal Smalls, who uses ratiosemiotics to essentially expand the scope of ratiolinguistics to include a broader array of semiotic modalities. And that's why I find it to be such a fitting framework to talk about jazz minutiae, because jazz minutiae is something that is constituted not only discursively, but of course, sonically, as well as visually and even somatically. And um, so what I'm really trying to explore is not only just how racial categories are reflected in the way that people talk about or perform or otherwise experience jazz minouche, but I'm also trying to show how racial difference can be constituted through these very practices and also how the range of semiotic modalities that a musical practice like jazz minouche or really any other musical practice for that matter, um, you know, how, how this 
this range of modalities can have significant effects on the political and economic opportunities that are available to the people who engage with this music, and especially uh, people who are ascribed a marginalized status, such as Manouche people uh, in France. Uh, so this gets me into another key aspect of the book, um, coming yet again back to the title, uh, which is my use of the term ethno-race. And um, ethno-race is a term that was coined by David Theo Goldberg, and he used this term to acknowledge the contingency of the terms race and ethnicity as separate terms, um, and how each of them are ways of ascribing some kind of fundamental social difference to individuals or groups of people. So in the context of this book, I use ethno-race to emphasize just how slippery the categories of race and ethnicity are, uh, especially because in a lot of the archival and ethnographic work that I did, I found that these, each of these terms gets used in somewhat interchangeably depending on what someone's trying to say about a particular person or, or a group of people. Um, and in France, generally speaking, people nowadays avoid using the word race or talking about race, uh, but they often use ethnicity as a kind of euphemism for race. Um, so this in turn gets me into another kind of key fundamental aspect of, of the book. Um, and this is this has to do with uh, the uh, complexities of French racial politics. So the French state technically does not recognize any race, ethnicity, or religion um, as an identity category. So the, um, the state doesn't collect demographic data uh, along any of these lines. And then French institutions generally consider themselves to be totally colorblind, regardless of the reality on the ground. So this is this this whole policy is uh, was developed in part because France is a deeply assimilationist state. So if you're a French citizen, you are expected to be French on French terms, regardless of your own ethno-racial or religious background. And if you identify too strongly with a particular group, usually a particular non-white group, uh, you might be considered to be communitarian or, or separatist, um, that you're not, you know, f considering yourself as fully French as you're expected to be. Uh, so this colorblind policy, it obviously does not, as I said, does not reflect the, the reality on the ground, uh, which is that people are differentiated all the time in racial terms. It is inescapable. Um, and so this makes it really hard for a racially minoritized person uh, and, and, you know, having to face this paradox in which you're told that on the one hand, your racial identity is irrelevant or in the eyes of the state doesn't exist. And yet you live this, this categorization, this identity every single day. So this is one way I think um, that a ratio semiotic approach can become really productive because if you don't have easy avenues for naming and talking about race, it becomes really important to pay attention to how all of the semiotic modalities through which race takes shape actually operate together. It's not just how you talk, it's how you experience all of these different communicative processes together. And so I'm looking at Jasmineush as one really semiotically rich area through which ideas about Manouche and Romani ethno-race more broadly actually take shape. Um, one more kind of uh, framing I'll, I'll give for this as well is, is the, the actual development of Romani ethno-race in, in France. Um, so Manouche people, I, I should make clear, have they've lived in France for, for centuries. Um, and uh, Romani migration itself, it began uh, out of Northwest India, basically a millennium ago, where nobody's entirely sure exactly when, but a, about around the year 1000, people started migrating out of Northwest India and made their way slowly uh, westward to the European continent. And so Romanis first appeared according to official documentation uh, in the 15th century in, in France. Um, and so there's you know been various forms of migration uh, since then, but Manouche people who call themselves Manouche people have, have been there for, for quite a while. Um, but uh, despite this, they have pretty much always been treated as second-class citizens. Um, and so in the 20th century, you see this, this, this uh, second-rate citizenship take shape really starkly through a variety of, of events and policies, um, 
namely uh, going back to a form of legislation that was passed in 1912 that designated all people who lived in some form of mobile housing. Uh, this this legislation de- designated them, them as nomads, nomads, um, and essentially created a, a special class of citizenship for them. And so these these people who were suddenly forced into this category faced way more police surveillance than the general population did and all different kinds of discrimination. Um, and so this legislation uh, was developed ostensibly on the basis of the chosen lifestyle of these so-called nomads. Um, but it was a well-known fact that most people who fit the parameters of nomads within this policy were indeed Romani. And the legislators themselves didn't exactly conceal the fact uh, that they were trying to get around France's colorblind policy um, by, in effect, redesignating a racial group based on their behavior or so-called behavior. So that legislation has been reformed numerous times over the years, um, but it is still on the books and it continues to have some some really devastating repercussions for the people who are subject to it. Uh, So considering all of that, uh, Manish people in Alsace have, they in in turn have long been considered to be uh, second class citizens. Um, And uh, they you know, over the last several decades, Jez Manouche has really been considered to be one of the most promising, if not the most promising means for them to prove their, their value to society, even if it comes at, at certain costs. And here we really get into the ambiguities of Django's legacy, right? Because despite being Manouche, he saw himself primarily just as a, a jazz musician, as many other jazz musicians. And in France today, his legacy has really got this pull and push between people who say, no, Django Reinhardt is is French. We don't classify him as Manouche. Could you maybe talk about that and how jazz Manouche became really popular starting in maybe the 2000s? Yeah, so um, so this this kind of this this push and pull around the um, around what Django should represent is really kind of at the heart of a lot of this um, a lot of the the tensions that surround the jazz Manouche itself. Um, so so I'll, I'll I'll say a bit about kind of how how it took shape. So um, so it really, uh, as I mentioned before, began to um, develop in the late sixties, early seventies with some Manouche communities who who took a liking to Django's music. And then over time, they decided that this was something that they they really wanted to pursue, uh, both in a collective and an individual sense. And um, what they were doing wasn't really considered to be a distinctive genre at, at the time that they started doing it, because they were just playing Django's music uh, because they liked it. Um, but as it became more and more evident that Manouche musicians could really capitalize on this music, as, as their own music and as something that was considered really ethno-racially specific to them, uh, they started to make inroads in into the music industry and then developing this kind of minutiae brand of this music, oftentimes with the help of, of nonprofit organizations and others. So the music became, on the one hand, this, this non-commercial family practice, and it also became something that could be sold to a wide audience, mostly of non-Manouche people. And so then starting in 1980s, uh, when when this style of music that they were performing wasn't yet really named Jazz Manouche, um, but when it started becoming really marketable, uh, this, this label just kind of developed. And it's kind of hard. I, I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly like who invented it. There, there are various stories that circulate about who did it, but it did emerge and started to become used pretty regularly uh, in the media starting in, in the 1980s. Um, and so uh, one, one thing that I learned from some of my interlocutors was that early on, this was the kind of music that you would find just mixed up in the world music section of, of the record store. It was just, you know, like one of many quasi exotic musics, I guess. Um, but then when you started getting into the, the 90s, especially the late 90s and the early 2000s in France, you started to see jazz minutiae become its own category, often as a subgenre of jazz. So it kind of uh, transitioned from, from a more quote-unquote folkloric genre to something that uh, was gaining a, a bit more distinctiveness and, and respectability. Um, and so this, this respectability, of course, was uh, depended largely on the fact that it was so closely associated with Django. Um, 
who again occupied this this space of being both an important figure in French heritage, but also in Manouche heritage. Um, and so I would say that Jess Manouche kind of peaked in popularity probably at some point in the 2000s and, and really culminated in 2010 with the 100th anniversary of Django's birth. So there were a whole bunch of events and record releases and, and that sort of thing um, right around then. Um, and since then, it's become or it's remained a, a highly recognizable genre, um, but it hasn't uh, been quite all the rage as it was uh, over a decade ago, but it's still become like really recognizable um, again for, for both its French and, and Manouche dimensions. And that of course has, has led in turn to uh, a lot of ideas being uh, propagated about what Manouche identity is or should be or who Manouche people are based largely on just people's listening to this music and knowing that it's called jazz Manouche. This relates beautifully to an organization that you refer to in the book. And the organization, of course, organized in Alsace as a pro-Romani group, promoting Romani interests, whose leadership, as you write, was primarily made of non-Romani people for a long time. Could you talk about this organization and how they made use of what you call ambivalent essentialism? Sure, absolutely. So, so this organization uh, it uh, went by an acronym, which was APONA, um, and that is uh, short for uh, a, a mouthful of an organization name. It was called L'Association pour la Promotion des Populations d'Origine Nomade d'Alsace, uh, which means the Association for the Promotion of Populations of Nomadic Origin of Alsace. Uh, so, so this was a nonprofit organization that was created in Alsace in the mid 1970s in response to some really serious racial violence that had been happening against Manouche communities. And um, from its founding until its closure in the early 2000s, so we're talking uh, a 25-plus year span, uh, APONA was basically a social services organization that served mostly Manouche communities as well as some other uh, Romani or Romani adjacent communities. Um, and they really, they focused on building capacities in housing, healthcare, education, and employment. Uh, but one really important aspect of their work was cultural development and promotion. And so right from the beginning, the leaders were committed to using music as a way of both raising awareness about Manouche people and then also developing a kind of economic niche in which Manouche musicians could be successful and, and even become ideally self-sufficient. So I talk about Aponad at various points in the book, but chapter two is really where I, I delve into the history of this organization and its musical engagement. And um, that's where I really try to show both what motivated the organization's leaders to um, to become so musically engaged at the time. Uh, but then I also look at the at, at the time that the, the organization existed. Um, but then I also really try to look at the the legacy that this organization has, especially in its its musical legacy, and how people who were part of Apuna uh, way back when still continued or at least try to continue to maintain this kind of musical legacy through various means, um, including the, a still functioning music school um, and other kinds of activities and organizations of, of which they're a part. So it's basically about like the, the afterlife of Apona. Um, and so one of the things I focus on is how uh, Apona through, through its promotional work um, did or engaged in a process that I call in the book ambivalent essentialism, uh, which is a term I coined to basically capture the kinds of tensions that are inherent to the process of essentialization in all its forms. So I use this term to name the contradictions um, and also the compromises that are involved when a group is essentialized or essentializes itself toward particular ends. So in the case of Apuna, for them, promoting jazz Manouche as uniquely Manouche um, basically was a way for them to say that Manouche people are the best purveyors of this music because it's part of their communities, um, because they have a certain knack for it, um, and because this music is a, a crucial part of their identity. And so Apuna felt that this was overall like a really a good thing and something that was worthy of, of promoting, again, to bring, bring a dimension of respectability to, to this population that had otherwise been, been quite marginalized. Um, 
But the problem is that when you promote an entire ethno-racial group uh, as valuable primarily in terms of a specific musical practice, you are also clearly doing a lot of essentializing and you're really foreclosing a lot of possibilities for them to be considered in all of their many dimensions, which might not be musical. They might not be jazz minutes. They, they might be many other dimensions. So you're basically kind of pigeonholing them into, into a particular category. So the ambivalent part of ambivalent essentialism is really getting at the experience of, of being, uh, at least in this case, one of those essentialized musicians who, on the one hand, wants to capitalize on this pretty successful ethno-racial branding, um, but then on the other hand, wants to be taken seriously as an artist, regardless of what their ethno-racial background is, and to be able to define themselves on their own terms. Um, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll say, to, to be honest, for me, um, this is one of the most valuable concepts I think that I develop in the book, because I think it adds some nuance to discussions of essentialism more broadly. Um, and I really hope that it can be applied to a, a whole range of other contexts in which essentialism is, is deemed really problematic. And I just, you know, in, in developing this, I really wanted to um, to capture the all of the contradictions that I that I was observing and and to, you know, account for how people were actually feeling and how they could they could change how they felt about this essentialism at various points uh, in their careers or even in their days or within a conversation you know these all of these kinds of contradictions started, started piling up and I really wanted to do justice to, to what I was seeing there so that that's kind of what one of the um, themes that came out for me when when I was researching Apona um, in both its past and present iterations and one of the people who does this most powerfully throughout the book is Gigi, <laughs> one of your interlocutors. Can you can you uh, elaborate a little bit on Gigi here? Sure. So yeah, Gigi, I kind I kind of knew from the start he he would probably play an important role in this project. But um, so Gigi Luffler, um, he is someone that I who I met pretty early on in my field work, uh, who kind of. Uh, it immediately took an interest in me and I took an interest in him and we both were kind of like on the same page about certain things. And he, so he became a pretty good friend, um, a really good friend pretty quickly and uh, really became very invested in a lot of the kinds of questions that I was asking uh, because he had already been asking a lot of these questions himself. Um, so Gigi is a Manouche guitarist who was born and raised and continues to live in Alsace. Um, and at the time of my field work, he was gigging pretty regularly as a rhythm guitarist. Um, and he was also running a, a small jazz Manouche school, as well as doing a whole variety of activism oriented projects and other kinds of performance projects as well. So when I met him, this was in the summer of 2013, um, he seemed like someone who could really show me a lot in terms of how, how a particular musician both does music as an end in itself. And he's, you know, very, very passionate about this music, um, you know, for himself and for his community, but, um, how, uh, you know, he would also use music as a means to achieve a variety of, of outcomes in the political sphere, economically speaking as well, um, both, again, for, for himself and, and his broader community. So um, Gigi is also someone who sees himself as really fundamentally Manouche, um, and he, he sees himself as not, not being fully assimilated, even though he participates a lot in the non-Manouche world. He's, he's, you know, very, very embedded in it. Um, and so um, he's, you know, he, he sees himself as being kind of between two worlds as being like fully Manouche, but also like really wanting to engage with non-Manouche people and be, and be part of that world as well. Um, and so I, I found that to be, you know, really so something that, that showed me a lot about how he conceptualized his own Manouche and non-Manouche identity or, you know, facets of his identity, um, and then how he viewed other people as well. And so um, basically, uh, you know, because I came became really close with him and I got to follow what he did really closely, including all of the, all, all the really high moments, the really, you know, big successes of, of his life and career, and then also some of the low moments as well, um, 
you know, because of that, because of the fact that he really wanted me to tell his story, he, he wanted his story to get out there. Um, I knew that I, that I really needed to orient a lot of this book's narrative around this experience that I had with him. And, um, and I really wanted to show in a, in a detailed and, and fairly capacious way, all of the kinds of hopes and dreams that really get pinned to this music. Um, and I thought he was a really good example of someone someone who invests so much in this music. Um, and then, of course, how it telling this uh, allowed me to show how ambivalent essentialism is kind of a necessary result of this kind of work when, when you invest so much, when you put so much responsibility onto a music like that. Um, so Gigi is really, he's a thread throughout the book, but there are there are also a number of other people who are kind of main characters in the book um, who show a lot of the different dimensions of the musical scene and, um, and of ambivalent essentialism and with whom uh, Gigi sometimes intersected and sometimes didn't. Um, so I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, by including all of these different voices, I really wanted to show just how heterogeneous the jazz minouche scene is in terms of its its people, but also its goals and its orientations. And then by extension, I wanted to show how minouche populations are are really, you know, not not monolithic at all. And so I think Gigi was just one of many stories, but like a really good story to to tell. One of these high moments comes at the beginning of the book, and then you also end the book with one of these low moments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you talk more about this opening scene of the book? Because I love it so much. Sure, yeah. So this, this opening scene, I, I, I worked over the scene <laughs> over many years, um, both thinking about it and, and writing about it. Uh, and so this, this was a scene, uh, this basically it, it revolves around a concert that I, that I went to, that I, that I videotaped and was present for, um, in which Gigi, as, as with many of the concerts that he put on, he, he envisioned it both as, as a gig, as, you know, a way to, a way to perform and make money and all of that, but also as a way to, to raise awareness about his community and, and really show what, you know, what he called like the beautiful sides of, of his community and really become kind of a, a spokesperson for Jazz Manouche and for Manouche communities writ large, even though, um, you know, he's, he's, doesn't speak for everyone, of course, but but he kind of saw himself in that way. Um, and so uh, at this at this show, uh, things ended up as I, I describe. I won't give too much away of the story, but things got a little chaotic. Um, and so right in the middle of this moment of chaos, um, I was just kind of trying to take in everything that was going on, and there were a lot of things that I that I identified as being both. Um, both reinforcing of certain negative stereotypes about Manouche people, but also showing some, some things that um, the Manouche performers up on stage were really proud of. And um, so when Gigi, he just kind of came up to me behind my, behind my shoulder and just kind of pointed out what was going on and said, now that's Manouche. I, I just had all these thoughts kind of going through my head of like, what is he talking about? <laughs> like, which, what, what is he referring to? And eventually I learned it was, it was, um, he was talking about the specific right hand technique um, that, that musicians were, were using. Um, but that was a moment that in retrospect really opened up um, a, a lot for me in terms of, you know, what, what it could mean to be Manouche and what, what someone might be identifying. And this also gets back to the kind of raciosemiotic framework that I was outlining is you have all of these different, essentially signs that are being produced in this moment, produced and recognized in this moment. And um, that to me, that moment really encapsulated just how polyvalent the idea of Manouche identity can be. And even the, the, the sound, the one moment of sound can have so many different meanings. And so um, that was just, you know, a, a, a moment that I that I recalled, but also that I picked up on video. That I was just like, oh yeah, okay, this is this <laughs> this this says a lot, and it says a lot about how enthusiastic Gigi was about not just about the right hand technique, but about what that represented more generally in terms of something that was uh, unique and powerful, and um, some, something that really for him, I think too, encapsulated what it, what it meant to be minouche. And um, I, I explained before this right-hand technique, it's, it's very, it's very percussive. It's very, it, it is very powerful. It, it, it creates a very identifiable sound um, that, that has energy and, and um, you know, really pushes the music forward. So I think, you know, in, in that sense too, we could think of uh, his idea of uh, minouche people being a, a, a forward moving um kind of uh, powerful force, I think that that also said something about uh, what Gigi was thinking at the time. 
And then you end end the book with a barbecue that doesn't go Gigi's way. Yeah. So the the ending story, again, I don't want to give too much away, but um, the uh, that story revolves around a day later in my field work um, in 2014, uh, when I accompanied Gigi to a a ceremony to name uh, a new variety of rose that had been cultivated by a rose farm in Alsace. Um, And he had worked really hard to uh, like over the course of months, he had worked really hard to participate in the ceremony and um, bring not just the musical performance to it, but also to use it as a platform to talk about the existence of Medouche people in Alsace and the music that they're making and how to name uh, this, this, this new rose variety was being named after, after Django Reinhardt. Uh, so it had a little registered trademark on it and everything. And so, you know, Gigi, want, he, he was so used to Django's name and image being exploited in so many different ways. Uh, context that you know he saw this opportunity as one in which he could actually try to reclaim a little bit of that um and and try to ensure that it wouldn't be fully exploited but um he ended up being pretty disappointed in the outcome of of this ceremony and so that was one of those moments as well where uh you know Gigi and I like we, we were close friends and we are we are still close friends but um you know he was really very open to me at that point about uh how frustrating it was to see his efforts be continually stifled at at every point, or at least so it seemed to him. Like he did, he made progress in certain ways, but there was just at a certain point, no escaping the fact that people were going to exploit Django's name. They were going to make stereotypes about Manoush people. They were always going to do this. And it was, you know, kind of an inescapable fact. And so I think this, this realization that, you know, he had time and time again, was one that I also had over time. And I'll admit that I went into this project with a very, very optimistic idea of what music could do and what uh, what kind of potential music would have for Manouche, specifically Manouche activists, like in, in terms of raising awareness. And, you know, I had, I had seen and read a lot about how music, especially in, in the U.S. context and other contexts as well, had been used for this, you know, this, this powerful force for change. And I was really motivated by that. Uh, and then when I saw how it actually played out, when I did, you know, the really deep on the ground ethnography, I saw like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not how music <laughs> usually works. Um, you know, it is, it is an industry, it's a business, and it's not something that is, is necessarily going to have that kind of transformative effect, no matter how much people want to invest it with that, with that prospect. Uh, so rather than, you know, become disappointed by this, or, you know, um, treat it as some kind of failure, I decided, uh, as I was writing the, dis- the dissertation and the book to just really treat this as part of what actually happens. And, you know, this, that, this is that, um, you know, I, I don't mean to, to um, short change or to, uh, you know, speak ill about the efforts that people are making in terms of music centered activism by any means. I'm just, I, I, I wanted to reflect kind of the realities and, and the, the pros and cons and, you know, the, the, the highs and lows of, of this, of, of how people actually try to use music towards these uh, political and, and economic ends. Um, and I found that it was just a really mixed bag. And I wanted to, uh, to attend to how mixed it could be, um, and how, you know, even with all, all of the failures that it can have, that doesn't mean that the whole thing is a failure. It's just, you know, so, something that, um, something to be careful about, I guess I could say, if that's, if that's one of the messages of the book. And I think you capture that brilliantly. This is easily one of my favorite books that I've read this year. This was such a joy to read. And there are so many things that, of course, we unfortunately don't have time to get to. As you know, there is one tradition on the New Books Network that I always uphold, which is to end the interview by asking what you are working on now. Great. Well, th- thank you so much for, for all of these kind words about the book. Um, and uh, yeah, so the the what's next question. Um, so uh, so my current project is about minutiae approaches to commemorating the Romani genocide that was waged during World War II. And this is something that I touch on in the book. Uh, and that uh, that I that I have I actually have a whole chapter about this in my dissertation, or at least about one way in which um, some Manouche cultural producers uh, 
did a, a genocide focused work. Um, but the subject was kind of tangential to the main subjects in the book, um, even though I've been researching and thinking about it for basically just as long as I've been researching Jasmine Oosh. Um, and so one of my main motivations for this new project has to do with the fact that it has been a very long and uphill battle for Manoush to even get a little bit of recognition for what they endured during World War II at the hands of the Nazis and then also at the hands of French authorities, um, you know, with the, with the Vichy governments and all of that. Um, and so it's not only recognition that some people have been trying to get, but reparations um, is something that Manoush people have had basically zero access to, despite other groups um, getting getting their due. Um, not all of them, but but still, it's something that um, that the that French government has really just not recognized nearly as much as as they should. And so a big factor in this lack of recognition and reparations is the idea um, that's pretty widespread in both scholarship and media uh, that Manoush people don't talk about the war uh, and that they, they don't talk about dead people. They don't talk about traumatic events. Um, and so there's this idea that they either don't want to or aren't able to tell the story of what happened to them and their communities um, to and that they that they won't tell the story to any kind of public audience. Um, but as I was doing my research throughout it, uh, I found that uh, to the contrary, there were plenty of instances in which Manoush people do speak out uh, in various ways uh, about past trauma and especially about, about the war um, and the effects that it's had on their communities. And so, um, so this project is going to be another one that is both ethnographic and archival. Um, and, uh, it's going to be one in which I will try not only to thread together, uh, some of the stories that are told across, uh, various art forms, including, um, literature, especially the testimonial genre, um, and, and through music and through filmmaking as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, show what's, what's been done and what continues to be done, what people hope will be done. Um, but I'm also really trying to push back against this very essentializing idea that the Noosh people either won't or cannot participate in contemporary frameworks for uh, genocide commemoration. Um, so I've already written a couple of articles uh, about this and, and I've done some cursory field work, but um, if all goes to plan, I will be in France uh, next fall to do some more in-depth field work. Um, and then hopefully also work with uh, some of my interlocutors to develop uh, some kind of web-based media to help further their awareness raising goals. Um, so that's that's really what's in store. It's um, <laughs> not the most uplifting uh, topic, but it's something that I, I feel uh, particularly compelled to do um, largely because of what I've of, of what I've observed. Um, and also there's a, a personal dimension to this motivation as well, which is that uh, my father was a uh, political prisoner um, of the Nazis during World War II, and he was sent to various concentration camps and, um, of course, uh, survived to tell his story. But he actually didn't tell his story until relatively late in his life because, um, you know, he was, for various reasons, having to do with um, PTSD and all of that. But um, I was, uh, you know, I've I've grown up with, with this story because he started telling it around the time I was born. Um, and it's become like, so, so much part of who, who he, you know, the, the person that I knew him as. Um, and um, it's his, his shift from going from being very silent about this experience to becoming very public about it uh, is something that I, you know, also see in, um, in how Manoush people are, are portrayed in terms of, of the genocide. So um so yeah, so there's that personal dimension too. So um, I'm hoping to basically create create a book project um, as well as this more uh, kind of interlocutor focused uh, media project as well. Some, something that can um, that can be useful for them at the same time. And once the book po project is completed, of course, I would love to have you back on the show. I would love to be back. This has been a real pleasure. The book is Django Generations, published in 2021 with the University of Chicago Press. Professor Steve B. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.